joining Analytics Today, a podcast series that focuses on big data and analytics and the latest trends in the digital world. I'm your co-host, Jeremy Roberts, and with me always is my co-host, Samir Khan. What is up, Samir? Jeremy, how are things? Yeah, you know, exciting. I, I actually have friends that have put out their Halloween stuff already, and I'm sitting there thinking, dude, it's still September, <laughs> and you're already putting out Halloween. And then I even had a friend start... Um, bragging about new pumpkin pie recipes for Thanksgiving. And then I saw somebody putting up Christmas lights in a neighborhood and I kind of wanted to stop and figure out what kind of random person they were, but that's <laughs> what's going on with me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, I call that proactive being proactive. Right? <laughs> oh yeah. It's what happens when you live in the world of, of nerdy data and analytics people, you know, that's but fantastic. Speaking of a segue for very smart and nerdy data analytics people, we won't call you nerdy yet until we get to know you better, but we have a guest on today. Um, we actually have a guest named Dr. Michael Cohen. Um, and so I'm going to go ahead and uh, Michael, I guess, how you been? I've been better. Better. Uh, yeah. 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 Uh, we've been spending a lot of time, you know, I live in the Upper East Side in New York and we've okay. spent a lot of time in the apartment for the last six months. I have young children. Um, so this is a special kind of torture. Oh, well, this, yeah. I'm doing my day job too. So, well, yeah, <laughs> well, you know, I, I'm sure there's a lot of people, you know, and so let, let's do this. Let me give you, um, the quick intro first and then we'll go into that. So I'm going to read out your bio, um, and we'll just let everybody in the audience kind of know how special, uh, of a guest we have on today. So. So Dr. Cohen is a chief of, of data and technology at Marketing Evolution, a company that helps innovative brands measure and optimize their marketing at every touch point by utilizing big data and personal level in, or sorry, person level insights. Dr. Cohen has been responsible for the research and development of analytics products, protocols, and software, and can speak to various topics on marketing measurement and optimization. So previously, he has been a keynote speaker at events such as the ANA Masters of Data and Technology Conference to discuss customer-centric marketing in the era of privacy and regulation. And he recently led the ANA webinar on the impact and opportunities of cookie-less advertising. And Dr. Cohen can speak on any of the following topics that we give him, which will be fantastic. So we're going to try to we're going to try to go all out nerd here. This is going to be great. And so, um, and, and, and thank you for coming on. This has been fantastic. We've actually over the last few podcasts have been on this track around cookie list advertising data and analytics, just really dig customer into it. So centricity, yeah. customer centricity and it's, I'm going to use air quotes. It's a big deal. It's a big deal now. So, so thank you for coming on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So, uh, Samir, do you want to start or do you want me to start? Yeah, no, go ahead. I think uh, one of the things that I would like to say with, with your background, right, Michael, with all this uh, analytics and with all this uh, great career that you have, uh, usually, you know, it's good to talk about what's already available on LinkedIn that people has access to. Uh, we always like to talk to our, you know, our guests and ask them specific questions like, what are the things that people don't know about your career? Can you highlight that? And, and let me caveat that too. If, if you could, a lot of times our guests have maybe gotten to a place where you are, but they had this job at the gap where they're selling, you know, in retail behind the cash, cash register. And there was some job that they had that sparked their idea that they wanted to go back to school or they got into something. So if you even want to start back that far, go for it. Absolutely. Um, you know, in general athletics don't lend, you know, sent me down an academic career path. Um, I wasn't uh, particularly astute. I mean, I probably had the competency to, to do well in school and stuff like that, but I prioritized uh, being a successful athlete. Um, and that ended up leading me on a path, an academic path. Uh, eventually, you know, I, I played very seriously uh, golf and mm -hmm. hockey and baseball. Um, played golf in college. Um, and uh, that's, you know, in golf, there was a culture of uh, doing well academically. Um, and then when you start to do well academically and you think of that versus a golf career path, um, the sort of uh, lifelong rewards that uh, 
intellectual pursuit can provide you financially and just in mm -hmm. terms of autonomy and stuff like that seem to be um, better if I place that time back in academia rather than uh, professional golf pursuit. That makes sense. So I, I guess what, when, when you were in the, let's say within sports and you started to see kind of a turn, a turn of the tides, was there a, a moment was there an instance or maybe a, a mentor or a situation that said, you know what, this is what I want to do. And not, not many people have the, an ambition to get down and, and focus on data technology and analytics. I mean, Samir and I have our own paths to that from where we started, but it, was there somebody or was there like an, a storyline that happened around that? I'd say a storyline. I mean, it, once I decided that uh, uh, a life, long career and successful um, life story would require, you know, economic success and, and stuff like that, that, you know, um, that I should do something hard, technical. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, then the, the marketing piece was just something I was interested in, you know, like okay. high school, they have this DECA thing and, you know, I took marketing classes and I, I didn't, wasn't too into the marketing because it wasn't technical enough, but I had interested in marketing, but so I left the marketing to the side um, and then started down the more technical path, um, but a practical one. So economics was really interesting to me and you can do lots of different things in economics, you but can. the yeah. opportunity to do things that are very um, technologically and scientifically advanced in the areas of econometrics. And so that's the pursuit you know, initially in, in college that I took just to do something hard and that doing something hard and practical would lead to the sort of uh, successful career. That so was I'm going to make a correlation here. And, and I, like I said, I, I'm also coming from an athlete background. I know Samir, um, the one sport that I still do not understand the rules of, and you owe me a, a rules uh, overview in cricket. I still have no idea how the hell they get 17 points of something and whatever. <laughs> we'll go over that one day. But um, I, I think for me as an athlete, it's that competitive nature of saying, you know what, is there something harder? Can I do something that's more competitive? Because right now, just saying you want to go in sales, not knocking sales. I'm basically in sales right now, but in technology sales. And so with that, it, it's what more can you do? What more can be challenging? And I think Samir and I have both, both been down that path too. And I, I'm really glad you bring that up because, you know, not a lot of people talk about that correlation between going from very competitive sports into a very competitive field and understanding, you know, the complexities of technology. Right. Yeah. So. And I think, you know, with, with that note, uh, what's interesting to our listeners is especially with someone who has achieved kind of a, 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 a status in analytics and data where they're sort after for speaking engagements and webinar, but a lot of people don't understand the challenges that come with it. Uh, so, Michael, from your perspective, given that uh, you kind of translated your uh, your sport career to an analytics career, like what are the challenges that you face when you make that switch and you you move from marketing to technology and data? Um, when you move from marketing, to, so I, I, uh, my recommendation is not to move from marketing to technology and data, but the other way. You know, I, <laughs> no, I was as part of my career path, you know, that is worth mentioning is that I was a full-time faculty member, uh, economics professor at the University of Connecticut, and then mm -hmm. a marketing professor at NYU Stern School of Business for a number of years full-time before going more into industry. But, um, you know, I would always uh, tell, especially freshman students, you know, you want to do marketing, go to the math class, um, and the, <laughs> the flow will be easier in the market. It's easy, like I say it's easy to teach, easier to teach uh, a math student economics and marketing than it is to teach a marketing or economics students math. 100% agree. Um, that, that's, uh, that's the direction of, of flow um, that I recommend and goes along with the story of like hard, do the hard stuff, make sure you do the, the math and, you know, the courses with lots of homework that you need to spend all your time doing uh, and not socializing so much during your college time. But, um, you know, if you can do that, then you can learn lots of things, right? You can still go to med school if you want with a math degree, that sort of thing. Well, one of the things I usually start with my students is basic, simple formulas like return on ad spend and return on investment. 
and this the the formulas on those are, are more simplified than others and i basically let them understand that hey you have to be able to do this to understand if you made money if you if you spend a thousand dollars and you only get back 500 that's not good <laughs> you know you have to be able to do that math and so no i don't care how creative you are and how magical your your you know your slogan and call to action is and, and the the you know the graphics that you used but if you're only making back half of what you spent that's bad and so they start to see the value in that so i think it's one of those things of the baby steps and and i completely agree when i have tech students that come in and try to get into a, a marketing role and start to take marketing classes they pick it up much quicker the hard part is that is that gray area and so one of the things I talk about is, you know, marketing doesn't always have just black and white. There's a lot of gray area in between um, that you can figure out when it comes to the analytics, it's not as black and I mean, it's not as gray, but when it comes to the creative side of marketing, there, there is that gray area, you know, to where it's, yeah. it's all about perception. Right. I would say the physics of it aren't all that different from other areas of business. Mm -hmm. Right talk about you know what the fundamental blocks are well, well what do you learn in calculus is you learn derivative right uh, and this the equivalent important element in economics is the concept of marginal management managing at the margin yep um, and that's what you need to understand to be an economically literate economically operational marketing leader and that's not what you see a lot of the time. You see that in the finance part of the organization or supply chain management in these places, they understand the economic fundamentals. But for the longest time, marketing has gotten away with this notion that, oh, we're a gray area. But the truth is that it's not. And you know, data illuminates that you know, marketing isn't this you know, magical area, but you know, an, an economic production function that you put dollars into and you get sales out of. Um, and so you know, all the economic literacy that anybody would expect from other business leaders and, and finance should be um, well in place for any marketing manager. Yeah. And I think especially now with, uh, with the economy turning upside down and every dollar is being counted and uh, scrutinized, uh, it becomes uh, extremely important for marketing leaders to pay attention to ROI and start putting the, their acts together, which kind of leads to the topic that we really wanted to dig deeper today. It's uh, the wasted spend, right? Mm -hmm. Before COVID hit, uh, marketing had the luxury of spending 100% uh, of the revenue and only showing return on the maybe the 10%. Uh, but now that that rule has been scrutinized pretty significantly, and uh, there are still some statistics showing like you know 80 to 90% of the spend getting wasted. I know that uh, you guys in marketing evolution, you guys do a lot of work, uh, and, you, and it seems like you have released a latest report that talks about the wasted spend. Can you elaborate on what role marketing evolution is paying, uh, playing there and you know, what, uh, how have you guys helped other marketing organizations overcome this challenge of wasted spend? Yeah, I'll, I'll talk about the wasted spend and then you bring up the COVID aspect because this puts a real bright light uh, on mm -hmm. the issue um, and what the, the practical challenges are there for marketers in different situations, one that are completely their business is taking off and some that are going in the other direction. In either case, um, you need to be smart about um, uh, marketing spend uh, and the opportunity that uh, increased scrutiny presents for, you know, savvy marketing managers. But yes, you know, where is the marketing spend being wasted? It's not, it's not being wasted as much at a, at a, high level. So the role of the marketing VP or the CMO is to say, all right, I have this budget uh, and I'm going to place bets across these different media channels. Um, and, you know, all the media channels can be effective way to reach and influence uh, high value customers that are out in the marketplace and potential ones. Um, but once you start uh, buying that media and deploying your marketing tactics, your media and creative and messaging placement, all these tactics, um, that's where you end up doing a bunch of stuff that has no effect, doesn't work. It shouldn't be surprising to people that like 80 to 90% of the tactics that are thrown out there doesn't work, especially in a digital world. People see stuff so rapidly and for whatever reason, there's stuff that just isn't working and it happens to be that the majority of stuff doesn't work. And then there's a few things that do work. Sometimes we know why, sometimes we don't. Uh, so the, op the first opportunity to really um, get a big gain out of having the insight of, of what not isn't working is where you can eliminate that marketing spend. So it's 
it's easy it's easier to start to show the evidence that something isn't working and then test your way into reducing those things that aren't working you know to clean up the efficiency that's really the entry point uh, is to get out that 80% of stuff that doesn't work and, and so uh, with with that you know kind of digging deeper like when you let's say if you are uh, an analyst or you are a data person in the organization and uh, the marketing has a substantial budget and then by doing that exercise and the things that are working versus things that are not working and you go back uh, to some of your leadership and kind of show them this data uh, and you know you get a lot of pushback like okay yeah I understand that's the nature of the there's always going to be a part of marketing that's going to work the other part is just halo or the other part is just branding like how do you how do you have those conversations those hard conversations in terms of like why there is a need for optimizing or maybe you know cutting the marketing budget um, it was much harder in a world where the cadence of uh, insight and recommendation was slower. So if on a quarterly basis, the CMO is expecting some sort of report on the contribution of the various media channel investments they're making, um, they were getting this, they had some sort of expectation. They used this as, you know, tool at the C-suite level and with the, the CFO to you know, justify the spend. And Jeremy said something earlier that's like, oh, you know, my ROI is good, um, getting a positive return. But the fact of the matter is um, that's not the right way to think about it. We have to always be thinking about how much opportunity we're able to seize. The same way we, our kids come home with a spelling test and they tell you you get 16 on it. And your next question is 16 out of how many? Well, CMO has been running around saying, they got, I got a 16. Look, this is great. But it turns out that they could have gotten 32. Um, and, uh, and driving towards um, improving or seizing more of the opportunity that's out there in the market requires quicker iteration and more testing, testing your way in. And this is a way for an analytics or what I'd call a marketing operations leader in the marketing organization to gain traction. They don't have to ask for a lot in terms of buy-in. They get to prove it out in small amounts you know, and, and this, uh, you know, cutting tactics that don't work is a great example of that, um, where you actually want to make a change, you make a small change, you prove out that, you know, hey, we killed these tactics over here, and it didn't really change the you know, projected line of sales, um, we saved a bunch of money, let's do it, let's scale that up. Um, that, that's where you can become effective. And it's a natural way for any manager with any the background to work. And that's what they're doing. You've been very creative. Um, and, uh, you know, CMOs from the past were always had some sort of instinct about what worked and what didn't, made some changes, fine tuned things, and then, you know, let's see what happens in the market. Um, and the technology and the way that data was being used to drive decisions didn't align with that. There was this notion that, all right, you're going to give me some sort of quarterly business review or something like that. And I'm going to tell you what the contribution to marketing is, and it'll basically underwrite what you're already doing. Um, and everybody will be happy. But that that is not this, you know, using technology and data to assist the way I already work as a marketing manager, which is I want to try things. I want to cash in and, and, and double down on the things that I know are working. Uh, and I want to, you know, reduce uh, investment in, in the things that aren't um, and to do that in an iterative way. And that, that requires more speed uh, in, in the technology. Yeah, I think it's important for our listeners to understand exactly what Michael was just talking about. You know, if you want to, whoever's listening, if you want to rewind back and listen to exactly what he just said, we always talk about that, you know, that concept of you got to understand what you're doing. You got to know the technology. Um, but you also got to remember Samir, that phrase that we learned back in the day, 10 plus years ago, you got to sell up, down and to the side. Mm -hmm. Remember that one? Yeah. That's the thing I, that's, what's important is you have to be able to find the data that can support your initiative. But what's difficult is being able to sell that success up, down and to the side, being able to take what you have, being able to take the data that you have and being able to say this worked, maybe, you know, uh, find small increments of success and be able to build upon that. But, you know, a lot of people are, I, I see in a lot of big companies, everybody's looking for the silver bullet to make that request or to go in with that big, um, 
you know, ask, Hey, I need more budget. Uh, here's my silver bullet uh, opportunity. No, we don't, a lot of times we don't want to, no, yeah. there's no such thing. We don't want a silver bullet. We want maybe, maybe some small wins that add up to something bigger. And so I, I think maybe Michael, my question on that is from your experience, how have you dealt with, you know, that incremental success versus that silver bullet request? I, for me, I kind of know the answer of what you're going to say, but I'm just curious to, for our listeners to understand how do you take the notion of this is the big silver bullet opportunity versus the small wins and where do you see the value in both? Um, yeah, that's a complicated question because the first place I think is the marketing organization and the prevailing incentives that are in place that would include the compensation that different channel managers get the CMO gets what the what's at the, the senior management what sort of things are driving them and even if you're asking or trying to do something very small like say all right I have a sense that some of this creative or messaging isn't working and I'd like to reduce the amount and improve that out that's a hard thing to do if there's some channel marketing channel manager that has control over that 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 is um, being compensated on some KPI that isn't the same KPI that you and the CMO or the, the shareholders are being paid on because we, yeah. we still have uh, channel managers that are, are focused on, you know, metrics like brand health metrics in isolation of total business performance, but they know that creative is really good at driving brand performance, but it's not good at driving sales performance. And, and they know if you just start to do a little bit of, of what you want to do, it's going to hurt their paycheck uh, at the end of the year. Um, and, uh, and having that support from above is absolutely critical um, to, uh, to do that. And having the change management that says, hey, brand manager, you know, we understand the importance of brand in the relative role it plays in the long-term success of the business. But to do, you know, for that to be the KPI that you manage against in isolation doesn't really align you with the rest of the organization and the firm's goal. So um, that those are the first sort of pieces you need in place to even allow somebody to do some of those small changes because they'll indict everything from, you know, the scientific method based on no scientific understanding. And we know what that's like in the modern world uh, <laughs> to stop you from even doing the little bit this the smallest bit of what uh, of that that small stuff that'll really help you gain the traction. So yeah, yeah, and I think uh, you know what you're kind of alluding to is where I was going to uh, wanted to go next is kind of the concept of flexible marketing. I know you talk a lot about that, uh, and you have a specific framework that you recommend as a part of that. So uh, can you elaborate more, uh, given that it's very much relevant to what you were saying earlier? Yeah, uh, the, the connection here is that, um, you know, the availability of, of data uh, has often determined the methodological approach that we use to evaluate and then provide value or insight or direction from that data. And if there's a change in that, that's an opportunity to disrupt data-driven decision-making for somebody to say, well, oh, you know, the answer's changed. Well, there's different assumptions, there's different information to inform us. It shouldn't be surprised that things have changed, but you know, let's test our way into this. Um, and, uh, and so I thought to myself, well, if the, the user experience for the, the marketing organization, the different stakeholders within it had continuity at the same time that data availability, for example, didn't, um, then, um, then we would overcome these bumps in the road that analytics leaders and marketing operation leaders face when, you know, some walled garden uh, platform like uh, Google or Facebook says, oh, we're not going to provide that data anymore because we had some big breach event, you know, uh, like a Cambridge Analytica sort of event or, you know, whatever mm -hmm. new legislation that comes in these exogenous things that affect a marketer's ability to have continuity in the type of data that they're using to make decisions. Um, and, uh, and so that's where I put the scientific hat on and said, well, you know, the fact of the matter is that data, no matter what the shape or form is all coming from the same place, it's coming from the same market, it's coming mm -hmm. from the same consumers that are, um, that are exposed, uh, marketing managers that are acting strategically in the market to deliver, 
that media and the behaviors that the customers or potential customers are engaging in in, in their journey and relationship uh, with the marketers, um, products and brands. And, uh, and so that means just like everything in science, we want to go to the fundamental building blocks. I mean, we've had interesting scientific discoveries in the last yeah. couple of years that relate to Higgs boson and just understanding those, because if you understand those things, then you can build all the beauty of the universe from a simple model. Um, yeah. and, uh, and you, you can do that. And this gets to customer centricity because that's the fundamental atom that all of this data that we care about comes from. And while the data uh, and the level of information that we can have might change in order to preserve privacy or in order for a monopolist to protect their position in the marketplace. Um, it should be the case that the underlying belief about where that data comes from, and we call this the data generation process, usually mm -hmm. in metrics, um, that that's unchanging. Now, the fundamental, like the underlying parameters will change and we'll learn more about them because this is an exercise in uncertainty management. But um, the, uh, the, the framework of a consumer journey and decision process won't change and informing what that model is with whatever level of data I have um, is going to be the way to create continuity in the data delivery process that gives uh, users in the marketing organization a continuous experience. So if, and, and users across verticals or that have different levels of access to data because of their own investment and in state and their, in their data, uh, their data journey, um, that, um, that flexibility provides. So a flexible yeah. solution is one that says, give me whatever data you have, you know, that'll determine some limitations, but in general, it doesn't change the fact that I'm able to provide you an assessment of the marginal return on the different, you know, marketing levers that you have an mm -hmm. opportunity to invest in. Um, and that there'll be a, a, a greater smoothness uh, in, in the results that won't disrupt this practice of data driven decision making. So that's. Yeah, that makes sense. Cool. So um, we're going to move in a little slightly different direction, talk about data privacy. So we did a podcast it was number 55. Um, on data privacy and the death of digital marketing. Um, you know, don't take that too literally, but you know, there's a lot of people getting scared out there around the data privacy issues that, and how that's going to really kill digital marketing for what we know it. Um, consumers are being uh, concerned. Uh, marketers are concerned. So how do you expect marketers to adapt to those consumer privacy concerns and laws? I mean, are you seeing trends right now? And I guess, where do you even see it going? Um, let me be clear. Uh, privacy is not at odds with uh, consumer-centric measurements. Um, okay. you know, we have to bring more uh, science to bear to understand that. Um, but it, 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 there isn't gonna, there's a, the death to third-party tagging and targeting, right? Because that's, we believe societally that that's, that's a bit creepy. It steals your autonomy. Like there's, there's reason <laughs> yeah. for this, but we also want as consumers, you know, relevant information um, and, you know, relevant awareness of things that are going to improve our lives and, and well-being. Somewhat of a level of personalization, you mean? You know? Yeah. <laughs> and they're, 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 people are willing to trade off for that. Now on the measurement side of things, um, one, I don't need to know every little thing about everybody. I need to know a representative set, right? I, there's no gain for me to go from 10 million observations to 100 million observations, right? The central limit theorem applies here and there's just a wealth of data. It's important that the data I have is representative so we can uh, you know, acknowledge the fact that data typically from the marketplace isn't. So it's more important that I end up with representative data more than I have each and every piece of information about each and every person um, that I have a representation of people and that mm -hmm. is complete in terms of the relevant pieces of information about those people and the market experience they're having. Um, and that means that the data can be, um, there can be privacy preservation uh, in the data or that if we do some level of aggregation to preserve privacy that, like I said, we can still, because we have a flexible uh, approach, we can still uh, learn something about how a certain type of individual Response to a particular marketing tactic, tactic in a particular time and place. So, 
um, privacy is uh, an opportunity more than anything, especially an opportunity for my business. One, because, you know, uh, I'm pushing, uh, I'm pushing a, um, a resilient solution, but um, the others that, uh, that it can be a clear dialogue with our customers about, about data and management of that data and ownership of that data. So there's a lot more that, that, that the tech world needs to do to enable that or facilitate that. But um, the, um, the fact of the matter is, that's visiting the show, yeah. um, but um, it's, it's not the end. And, you know, just to call out to something, that I'm going to be doing in, uh, in about a month's time with the ANA mm-hmm. from uh, Optus, an Australian company, um, is a case where we've you know been able to you know do operate in a very uh, privacy-focused market and provide customer-level insight that is allowing them to to make decisions and and continue continue consumer-centric strategy. Mm-hmm. In a world where uh, you know privacy compliance is at its highest, so uh, the way that we thought about, <laughs> I guess to sum this up, the way that we thought about privacy um, didn't wasn't the right way to think about um, how one we can measure the impact marketing and then act on it in ways that that people are fully okay with, and we lose nothing in terms of you know quality of uh, insight and action. Makes sense. Yeah. So, uh, Samir, you want to go to the next one? Yeah, I think uh, my, my thought is, so thank you for enlightening us with that useful information. I think there's always this notion at the back of the market or where the privacy is making our lives harder and harder or the new laws with regards to privacy is making life harder. And the insight that you provided is how do we think about the consumer centricity at the end uh, and not worry too much about that you know, the, the privacy part, the, the privacy part will automatically take care of it if you're being relevant, if you're being customer centric. So g- keeping that in mind, what are your thoughts? Like, you know, maybe you can say, maybe, maybe like boiling down to a very simplified version of action item. Like, so what are the three things that an average marketer can do today to make sure that they're complying with the privacy laws, but at the same time becoming more customer centric? Uh, they can have uh, a data-driven decision program. So, you know, there's lots of things we do with data. Some of it's just like insights and research and stuff like that. But if we're just talking about the operations of marketing, the the deployment of our resources, um, then uh, to do so with an understanding that the, the actions you're taking result in you know, exposure or treatment to some individual and that that individual is responding in some way and that's the feedback mechanism. Um, that's the, the underlying you know, model that, that we talked about. So you, you need that building block, as I said before, um, to be able to build such an understanding. And then um, the other thing is that um, you should make a serious investment in, you know, understanding what the solutions are in a privacy compliant world. How do we maintain um, customers that are able to be anonymous to the extent that they want to be, but still able to provide data or exchange of value with you and provision of that data such that it improves their experience as your customer. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, and that's a, a good cycle. Uh, so I guess that's two, but uh, once you have an understanding of, of a way to do that, and it's, it's not easy, right? But there's a lot of smart people thinking about this stuff. Then you need to make the investment of standing it up in your organization. So one, you have to have a good, good theoretical foundation of what drives your business, how you influence customers. That's a consumer centric understanding or model of, of your business performance and the investments you make in that business performance. Two is, you know, make sure you have a good understanding of, you know, what it is you need to, what sort of technologies you need and understanding of those technologies to get the best data um, in, in privacy compliant ways. Uh, and then you 
needed a separate effort to actually stand that up uh, and execute on that. Um, I guess I'd call it a data destiny and a data-driven decision-making uh, marketing mm -hmm. operations. DDOM. Uh, winded, but hopefully that. The, the, the DDOM acronym? Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's, so um, I, I guess one of the, what, what advice would you give to, and, and I think we talked about this at the beginning, but I, I guess I'm looking to dig a little bit deeper because one of the things that also Samir and I like to do is, you know, motivate and mentor, you know, younger up and coming marketers who are really trying to figure out their path. And, you know, there's a lot of people out there who are just absolutely driven. And, and it's funny is because they, I, I think they drink, drink the Kool-Aid of the Gary V's of the world, you know, sitting there saying, you know, you got to be ambitious. You got to be able to go out there. You're not, don't really give a crap about anybody else. Just do what you can to do. But the one great thing that Gary V says is, why are you complaining? You're 26 years old. Why are you complaining that you haven't accomplished anything in your life yet? Come on. You're only 26. He's like, it took me till I was in my thirties to figure out what I'm doing here. I guess, what is some advice would you give either yourself in the mid twenties or somebody that was similar to you in their mid twenties? Like, what path did you take? I mean, should they really go down a marketing path or a tech path? I think you were saying mostly or an analytics path. What's that advice you give them? Yeah. It's funny. You mentioned Gary V. Gary V and I used to drink wine together before he was podcast wine collector. And so that's how I knew him back then. But that the attitude is, is right. I mean, I even wrote down some notes to myself here that like, you know, when you're stuck, just wait. Um, and, uh, that happens often mm -hmm. in your life and you feel like you can't yeah. get out of it, but, um, it's not you that's going to be able to get yourself out of it. It's the, it's the flow of the universe that's going to free up a path. Um, but uh, preparing yourself for that to you know, grab the old adage that Derek Jeter used to like is, you know, preparation meeting opportunity thing. Opportunity being is that the universe has created some paths that you need to choose, but that you're prepared to seize those really means that you've invested in um in your intellectual capital now uh for me that meant um scientific and technological preparation you know pursuing that from the, the best minds in, in business science mm -hmm. uh, with the best minds in business science and then um but for you know my 10 year olds he's a little bit more you know um artistic or a good presenter and you know sales sort of guy, you know, helping him take on that journey means, um, uh, might not necessarily mean a bunch of science and math and stuff like that, but, you know, working really hard at those things that, that work for you. So just, uh, I question here, but, um, uh, you preparation, right. And doing hard things, whatever hard means for you, mm -hmm. um, a, a little different than, than Gary's. I, I think you should work at things that you're, uh, that you're not necessarily good at. Um, you learn a lot about yourself from that and a lot about others, um, which helps you with things like compassion and empathy and other stuff that, uh, those folks think are important, but, um, <laughs> the, 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 um, uh, that that's uh, I think that answers your question. Maybe you can help me pull it together. Um, yeah, it, it does, and it, it's a tough one. And I know Samir also does. Um, he does a lot of coaching, and uh, you know, so for me, I do also a lot of mentoring. And it's one of those things. It's, it's just a common question. It's, and you know, most of us, or I guess all of us, come from a you know sports background, and it's um, that competitive nature of saying you got to work on the things that you're bad at. You know, for me. Uh, I, I practice in, in Brazilian jiu-jitsu and getting beat up every day and getting choked or getting destroyed by somebody, it's a common practice. And so you're constantly working on the things that you're terrible at. And so yeah. it's one of the things you got to keep fixing it. Yeah, and, and so, I think yeah, my advice to someone who is early in their career is usually along the lines of what you guys are talking about here is you need to fail fast. Like just try different things and fail at it. Yeah. And I think people try early on their career, they have this peer pressure, pressure from their parents and they, they want to move out of the house and be on their own. That creates an unnecessary path for them that in the future they may not like. And they just kind of hone in and then and start practicing that and building upon it. One versus in that age, you know, they're, it's just about testing different things and see what sticks and just, 
that could potentially become your, if, if you're passionate about it, that could become your career. Like you don't want to go on one track and just give all your, well, kind of put all your eggs in one basket at that early on. You, you need to fail more and learn quickly. That, that will be my advice. So uh, moving on, I think one of the things uh, we always ask us, uh, our guest is, who are their, who are their mentors? Who are their peer network support system uh, that has helped them become successful? So same thing I'll ask you, Michael. Uh, who uh, like name two three people that you feel has provided immense level of contribution in your journey, and uh, you know what contribution has, and then what's the role that mentors have played in your life? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll pick two. I mean, I'm not gonna. I certainly my wife and family and parents uh, have been important. But if I think about that close lifelong network, it's my younger brother um, that I would point to. Uh, And the reason is, you know, he um, has overcome much harder challenges with his uh, own health to be successful in his life, born type one diabetic, celiac disease, colon, Mm -hmm. like all these sort of things, you know, continues to, to have those are lifelong sort of conditions that that follow you at least in the medicine that we have today it's gotten better but they're still there with them um and yeah he's a successful uh chemist and business leader um phd in chemistry and you know runs a large-scale chemical process company and that sort of thing and mm-hmm. um and so that's always inspirational that um when i think things are hard for me um, there's this guy who's done the same sort of stuff with all sorts of extra weight on his back. So that's, that's one, like, that's like a touch like mentor, um, mentor sort of experience. Uh, the other one is more in the realm of like, uh, my career and academic pursuit. And that'd be, um, jump here today at the university of Chicago, um, Sigmund Edelstein, professor of marketing in Chicago Booth School of Business, mm-hmm. uh, and just a prolific uh, economist and, and marketing science scholar um, who, you know, when I was coming up as a PhD student, uh, had very quickly gone from being a PhD student to a chaired professor at University of Chicago in a matter of five years or so. So I was like, wow. wow. Uh, <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and I got to go uh, hang out with this guy. So um, so I did. I made my way to University of Chicago um, and, uh, you know, worked with JP and, and just, um, you know, being around people that are that are smarter than you and more talented uh, has always been where I've experienced my greatest leaps of personal value in my life and just um, the ability of somebody that just gets everything uh, and is able to um, articulate that in a very clear and concise way, uh, you know, is, is, allows me to be a sponge that just like improves and broadens my whole um, set of skills, ability, and understanding about the way the world works, especially as it relates to markets and um, and marketing and being a marketing manager. Well, and so that was... I guess with that, when he gives you that type of advice, because I'm curious about this, when, when you're following a guy like that, and, and it typically it happens like, uh, you know, when your son or, you know, your kids look up to you and they say, I want to be like dad, you know, do... Are you looking with a guy like that? You say JP, right? You call him JP. Um, are yeah, you following Jean Pierre? Yeah. Are you looking to follow his path, or are you looking to say, uh, or is he the kind of guy who says, "I like what you've done, but this is the path that serves you, but it's parallel to what I've done." Um, yeah, I I would say that he's supportive and going in any direction. I would say. Okay. Everybody in academia is like that because when you're really strong in academia, people who won't give you a choice that you have to be a professor, right? The very best students have they have to be, and people will prevent you. They won't write you the letters of recommendation. They yep. won't give you the guidance. This is this happens. Um, that is not the way that the JP is in any way, but will certainly help you uh, if that's the path you want. And um, certainly somebody who sees the value and actually seeing the ideas that that he and, and others in uh, you know management and business science have 
have spent a lot of time thinking about and haven't been very well adopted in uh, in business practice because we've gotten to a level where this stuff is so hard mm -hmm. um, <laughs> to actually do and understand that um, you know science tends to be decades out in front of actual practice and business but yeah. um, I would say yeah it's just about solving real managerial problems with with the latest science and, and technology that you know made uh, made things inspiring uh, or mm -hmm. inspired inspired me to very cool to do it right I and, and I know we're get to the end of the show so we would like to ask you anything that you would like to share with our listeners uh, that you feel like it will be really advantageous for someone to go and act on anything that you have in mind um i guess i have to think about who your listeners are you know there's different sets out there if you have people well, let's are, take two different ones some of them yeah. uh, the the first one are i would call them uh, director level and above marketing and senior, analytics, level, marketers, senior yeah. level marketing professionals. Um, and then we have the data other ones nerd, are, right? Yeah. The, the data nerd, right. And the up and coming data nerd, you know, that are really getting into it. Those are our two primary listeners. Right. Up and coming data nerds um, <laughs> should, should really take seriously this thing I talked about called the data generation process. Data doesn't come from magic land. You don't just pick up sophisticated algorithms and throw it at data and like just worry about like label or you know target prediction you know prediction in general the more interesting stuff happens on as i say the right hand side of the equation uh you know under understanding the deep you know that the derivatives of the function right the slope of this the surface that you're trying to learn about that's what the manager needs to know mm -hmm. right it, it doesn't matter if you can predict things at 99 percent you know, if if the inference about the right-hand side of the equation, meaning your ability to tell a manager something that's relevant about the things they can do to influence that outcome, um, it isn't well understood. And it's not well understood if you haven't thought about carefully from a psychological or economic or just state of nature perspective, the process uh, in the natural world that generates the data and writing that down, taking a position mathematically, theoretically about that. Uh, so that that's the thing I tell the data nerd is that you know that I generally find you know prediction it's useful for a lot of cases but this large space that there's just not enough people that are that are trying to you know predict the the uh, the impact of managerial actions yeah and just predict the outcomes uh, that that is uh, really important then for um, uh for marketing executive yeah marketing executive or an analytics person that's been you know along the way here it really depends that you rely heavily on on your fundamental training that you have a lot of these people have graduate degrees and uh learn something along the way and, and things have changed a lot it's been since like the early 80s and say econometrics uh where things rapidly changed um and in economics where people you know thought about the consumer as the fundamental building block um, and uh, developed a, a very complicated set of methods um, now in the last 20 years to actually be able to, you know, estimate um, the impact of marketing mm -hmm. on individuals. And uh, I often worry that a lot of people I run into haven't been learned on that, that uh, more modern marketing. I agree. Side. Um, and it's super intimidating because when you start reading those papers uh, uh, to learn about that stuff, it, it is not very accessible. Uh, it's it's mathematically very advanced. It's very jargon heavy. It's overly concise for anybody learning from scratch, but it has a super big impact um, on you know your your understanding of solutions and the sort of decisions you're needing to make and stand behind as a marketing analytics leader. Um, otherwise, you know, we'll keep seeing people act like marketing mix modeling is like some tried and true useful approach for <laughs> marketing impact, which it's not. And, you know, the idea that, you know, kludging that with something else is an acceptable way to claim you have, you know, a cross-channel unified measurement um, approach is, is sad. 
for me. But uh, you know, I'm being you know, people might be getting angry at what I'm saying, but like, <laughs> and, like, like we have a, a ways to to do this stuff better now. Um, and it's been around for two decades, but it's we've had a hell of a time getting it, you know, into practice because of it's a different understanding about where data comes from. Don't, don't worry, Samir and I have both sat on, I, I sit on the opposite side of the fence as a software provider and Samir on the other side now, but both of us have come across senior level marketers who are still living in the 80s and 90s and don't don't understand the new concepts. So being able to to bring them down to that foundational digital transformation level is always an interesting conversation. It takes time. So, yeah, it takes time. Yes, it does. It does so. And they're holding off for retirement. Just... <laughs> You just know, don't make me look bad. Help me out here. Out. You know, <laughs> very cool. Um, let's see. So I think we're at time, and I, this has been absolutely fantastic. I think our our listeners, um, you know, they're going to be very happy to probably go through the. I mean, and and re-listen to this one. I, I think yeah, a lot of the stuff that you had was yeah was was very good. And and for half of our audience, they're going to get it right away. For the other half, I say rewind go back and re-listen to, to what Michael was talking about because he had a lot of really great points in there. But, you know, if, if some of the jargon maybe have gotten to you, go back and re-listen to what he's saying because all very, very detailed and great information for you. So, Great. Cool. Well, this has been great, and thank you very much for coming on the show. Um, and as always, our guests can visit us at analyticstodaypodcast.com. And we look forward to the feedback. We look forward to uh, getting new guests on. Just reach out to us. And uh, thanks again. And Michael, this has been awesome. Kicking ass, yeah. man. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks from my cat as well for having me here. Yeah. <laughs> enjoy, enjoy New York.